Welcome to Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders, a podcast dedicated to the Southeast Asia high growth and early stage scene, where we ask industry leaders and experts for their experiences, insights, and advice on how to build and scale sustainable businesses in the region. My name is Sam Randall, and I'm a partner with True Search. True is the world's leading executive search platform for technology and tech-enabled companies. Since our inception, we have partnered with tech startups throughout their growth from pre-seed to post-IPO, with over 300 search professionals in 14 offices across North America, Europe, Middle East, and Asia, we have a modern and innovative approach working with the founder and investor community to advise and assist in successfully scaling their businesses. With a decade of Southeast Asia search experience in technology, I lead the high growth and early stage practice for True in the region. I help startups through high growth stages with advice on talent and hiring, as well as providing search for co-founders, leaders, technical experts. This week on the podcast, we welcome Sood Ahuja. Sood is a co-founder and CEO at Impress.ai, which is an innovative and leading enterprise recruitment AI platform. They work with top banks, telcos, and governments in Southeast Asia to achieve up to 80% higher productivity and accuracy in candidate selection for white-collar roles. Their innovative approach to the use of AI, chatbots, and industrial and organizational or IO psychology has seen them land clients such as DBS, Singtel, Accenture, and Boston Consulting Group, all before they've raised the Series A round. Sood's specialty is in growing the business, enterprise sales, and relationship management. And he says that his biggest achievement in life is making customers out of all of the companies who've rejected him for a job in the past. He joins me on the podcast to share his insights and challenges on setting up and growing an enterprise software business in Singapore to service some of the region's most prominent clients. We also touch on the importance of leadership values and the fascinating world of using competency-based assessments to try to remove bias throughout the hiring process. Sood, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. How how have you been? How has life been in lockdown in Singapore? Yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, just for every, uh, just as it is for everyone, I miss seeing my colleagues in person. I don't like it when most people keep their cameras off, you know, during meetings. So just can't wait to get back to normal office. I, I do think that remote working will become more important, but I don't think, you know, being in the same office space physically has any substitutes when it yeah. comes to working together. Okay, great. And how, so how has how the team sort of responded to, to working remotely? I guess, what, what challenges have you seen and, and what has the team done to make it more fun or more interactive? Yeah, so we, I mean, we have two offices, uh, one in Singapore, one in India. So we've always been built to, to work remotely. So our systems have stayed the same as they were pretty much. We don't do emails at all internally. We only use Slack. So email is only for external communication. We've had the, you know, the tools to do internal video calls for the longest time and the culture to support it. Yeah, so actually we didn't really feel any difference when it comes to doing actual work. So that all, except that I guess we miss brainstorming on whiteboards. But other than that, it's, it's been business as usual. Uh, people are working longer hours. Yeah, that's one difference. Morale is a little bit affected. So I've, we, we measured this thing internally, uh, which asks people on a scale of one to five, how are you feeling? So that's yeah. done every week, a pulse check. So yeah. before the circuit breaker measures kicked in, it was on average above four for the entire company of 30 people. 
Sure. And now it's just a tad below four. I, I do think people are working harder and they're maybe giving up on sleep sometime. Uh, because when somebody works hard, people who work with them work, end up working harder as well. So that's the only difference. We are uh, starting to do more games. So we, we never used to have that. So that's one big difference. On you know every second Friday, we're playing games as a company together. So it's like 30 people are invited. Maybe 20 of them will join. And we'll just play something like a code names or you know one of the online board games that we can play. It sounds like um, it sounds like you guys have adapted really well to it. Look, I, th- I think what I'd really like to sort of dig into across this the course of this podcast really is a little bit of your backstory, a little bit of your sort of journey into Impress, and just really, you know, deep dive into your the insights, the challenges that you've faced, the things that you've learned about throughout that sort of uh, journey. So perhaps we can we can take it back to the beginning. I see you studied at NTU. Perhaps you can give me a bit of a bit of a background on sort of coming into that course, your aspirations, what you wanted to do, where you wanted to go and stuff like that yeah i grew up in delhi in india so uh middle class family always had aspirations to to do bigger things because you know i was always inspired by entrepreneurs even even as a child even local entrepreneurs not the famous ones anyone who was building a company to me was kind of taking control of their destiny and that's an idea that stayed with me for throughout my childhood so when the opportunity came up, right, I ended up applying to NTU pretty much by accident because a friend was doing that. And he said, hey, there's this, this uh, university in Singapore and I'm applying. I said, OK, I'll apply to what's the harm. Uh, other than that, I had not applied to any foreign universities. So when I got in and they gave me a scholarship, I was like, OK, I'm, I'm going to escape. I'm going to be on my own now, build my own destiny. And yeah, Singapore looked great because... It was, uh, it gave me access to the rest of the world, very, very metropolitan country. Uh, so when I, when I got to NTU, I got to study exactly what I had imagined myself doing. I wanted to study electronics. I became an engineer. But of course, while doing that, I started realizing that uh, I wanted to be different from most people in the sense that a lot of people had come, come with ideas that they, they wanted to follow a certain tried and tested path to success. And that usually includes, you know, becoming an engineer, finding a job at the right kind of company, potentially doing an MBA, and then uh, usually end up switching to finance or consulting. But, you know, from from my earlier days, uh, right from my second year of university, I started getting distracted by more fun opportunities. And the first one was becoming a part of this team that was building a solar car for a competition in Germany. Uh, this was the Shell Eco Marathon. So when I did that, that was the first time my photo ended up in the newspaper in States Times. That was my second year at university. And I was like, yeah, this, this, this is cool. I, I want to do more things like this. So that's where my journey ended up starting. That's where I got the confidence that I can do things which are not tried and tested and still do well. And I think that's continued to date. That's wonderful. I think that's a, a slightly more constructive distraction than a lot of people get in their second year of university. So I think there's a wonderful, there was something good that came out of it. And and so I see coming coming out of uni, your first job was with the, the MAS. Obviously, that, that looks like a, a fairly sort of straightforward job. What what sort of made you pick that role? And, and I guess, how did that then lead on to you deciding to to come out of that and start the first company, which is ID, ID at Tree? Yeah, so... 
when I was close to graduating, I was looking for roles in um, in electronics and uh, you know microelectronics because that's an area that I was highly interested in. I was considering pursuing a career in physics research as well, but I I honestly didn't feel very excited by the opportunities that were available in those areas. So. I ended up exploring things that were different from what I'd been trained for in education. And MAS was one of those opportunities. I had been a, an avid reader of Financial Times for, and I have been for the past, I think more than 10 years now that, that I read the FT pretty much every day. But I think I ended up getting uh, MAS as a job because I'd studied the previous financial crisis almost in, a, in more depth than an engineer needs to. So when, when I got an opportunity to interview with MAS, I loved sharing with them what I understood about how the, how the economic world functions. And I think they found my thinking very useful. So they, it was a good fit. And I ended up working for them, even though initially I was looking for an engineering job. So that's where it all started. And it was a very satisfying role, intellectually satisfying role. I had an amazing manager who I still, I mean, shout out to him, Brian Yo. I still think of in difficult situations with, with my team. Uh, I would usually ask myself, what would Brian do? Right? So I've learned to work from, from that job, from my previous job. And that's where, you know, you, you start, start becoming an, an effective worker rather effective professional beyond that i think the idea in my head was always still that i need i want to become an entrepreneur i need to find a way to get back to starting a business because even by my last year of university i had started a pseudo business within university doing something with editory the name editory actually came up in 2011 that's when we christened it uh, and i was still in uh, university back then so I was always trying to get back to it. And during MAS, I was leading a dual life. Uh, I became addicted to espressos. And uh, to save money, I was making sandwiches for myself in the office so that I could live without salary for six months, at least. So as soon as you know the, I had enough of a bank balance, I could live without salary for six months, I quit. And by then, I had a client already, uh, one of my first enterprise clients ever, Electrolux. And I thought if I can get one, I can get more. That gave me the confidence. And so that, that's incredible. So how, how did you go about, firstly, tell me a little bit about the idea with Idea Tree, And then, so how did you go about getting a client whilst working a full-time job and, and sort of, you know, moonlighting as an entrepreneur? How, how, did, you, how did you manage that? Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's tricky, right, to talk about it because you have a full-time job and you're uh, technically not supposed to be doing a lot a lot else but <laughs> i i made sure my day job wasn't affected and i was kind of pursuing it as a hobby at that point the idea that i'd come up with in university was uh, based on open innovation this concept of open innovation where you solve real industry problems by crowdsourcing solutions and Electrolux became a client for that specific idea. Ideatory is a combination of idea laboratory. So it was started as an open innovation kind of company. So Electrolux became a client through one of the one of the global, I think, outreach they were they were doing to, to actually do open innovation. It was their open innovation team, and we were promising them access to scientific people, masters and PhD students. 
uh, masters and PhD professionals in the Singapore network that we had built. And we told them we'd be able to get you product ideas by running competitions for you know certain amounts of money within this uh, this crowd. It was not signed well until I started the the legal entity after quitting my role. But the conversations and applying, uh, you know, reaching out to Electrolux had started well before when I was uh, still in my job, moonlighting as uh, as a as an entrepreneur. Okay, so, so luckily, it came through. Yeah. So the idea was that you were sort of building a community of, of sort of engineers and scientists that were going to respond to uh, competitions put out by Electrolux to, to create new products and, and bring new ideas to them? Is that... Exactly. Yeah. Uh, new product ideas for Electrolux. And this was Electrolux Italy. That's where they run their open innovation from. Uh, another another point of confidence for me that I can sell anywhere in the world. Yeah, fantastic. And um, I guess, so, so you were in that company for, for quite a while. You ran that for sort of three, three and a half years. But talk to me about that journey and, and, and what did you learn throughout that time and what were your successes in, in that business? Yeah, so technically we ran Ideatory for about three and a half years. And what started happening very soon is that I understood that the open innovation business is going to be kind of slow. And there's the, the market for that is not as large as I thought. So going from, you know, as a, as a naive entrepreneur, some idea working and then realizing that, okay, the market for this is not going to be very large and it's going to turn into a consulting business. That was an insight. And when I started talking to more companies who I was trying to sell to, they said, hey, look, I, I don't want to do any competition online because I don't want to reveal any kind of IP. Why, why not I hire some of the people who are winning your competitions? So from open innovation, it ended up turning into uh, a data scientist, you know, competition company. So we started doing competitions in specifically data science because that was a key area of hiring for many companies at that point in 2015, 2016. Uh, so that became a good business. And we started, we basically became an assessment platform for data science roles. And that's when we added a lot of enterprise customers. I, I think we ended up working with up to 10 large enterprise customers uh, for the data science assessment business. When did that idea begin to evolve and how did you then make the, the sort of movement from Ideatory into, into the Impress idea? Yeah, so the Ideatory business and data science assessments and a couple of other business lines that we added ended up becoming a half a million dollar a year kind of business, but it was, it never really took off for us because the product, the product never really took off. A lot of the revenue was consulting revenue and I could start see a ceiling for that as well. I, so we'd expanded the team to seven people at that point. And it, it just, it just started feeling like, okay, this is not going to grow to a $10 million business ever. I could never, I could not see that happening, especially as a product, maybe consulting. Yeah. Uh, but it just stopped being exciting after a while. Uh, however, there were some unique insights we got because we were working with, you know, amongst many companies, we were working with top banks in the region, international banks as well, consulting companies. And we noticed that while recruiting, recruiters were struggling with not just volume of candidates and positions that they had to fill, but also they were finding it a bit difficult to manage their time because they have to ask repeat, they have to ask the same questions to every candidate at the early stages of the application. They also were recruiting for positions which they did not completely have the expertise for. So they were struggling with some of those things. And we felt 
that why don't why don't recruiters do use structured interviewing for for some of their techniques why don't they uh, use certain platforms that would give them the knowledge so so we noticed that they actually did not have the tools that can help them automate these uh, repeated kind of tasks help them with the knowledge that they needed to uh, to evaluate for these roles and we thought impress could be that platform so impress became a solution to do structured interviewing at scale for any role and it's based on io psychology principles so that's the idea that developed in our heads and we started taking it to our existing customers it's, it's fascinating to see the sort of uh, evolution of the thoughts and going in on one particular aspect of a of a problem and then spotting something else along the way and and pivoting across to to that i guess and uh, for the for the benefit of of the people listening could you give us like a a run through end to end of what impress actually does and how it helps the companies that are that are using it yeah so impress is a talent experience company which basically takes certain hr processes that are running within any enterprise and puts them on the platform in a way that they can be run autonomously very specifically we've scaled up our business by recruit by automating the recruitment processes that many large enterprises run so we've been able to convert the application process itself into a structured interview process so application plus the structured interview are kind of combined at the at the first stage when a candidate applies they get interviewed by this chatbot that will take them through everything they need to do to be shortlisted for that role before they meet with the hiring manager uh, that process for some companies was taking between 30 to 60% of their time because it's administrative there's, there's nothing useful happening most of the time you're just waiting you're just following up so that's the that's the main thing we've scaled up but we're seeing and bringing on board more and more hr processes like check-ins like surveys for example employee employee concierge kind of use cases so more and more hr processes along the hr value chain are now being brought on to impress to turn them into autonomous processes rather than humans having to deal with all of these things fascinating so i, I obviously as you started it was uh, taking the process from somebody applying for a job through to then selection for in, uh, further rounds of interview by by the, the the humans at the other end of that that process but now it sounds like you're doing more sort of post onboarding as well and and you know sort of running pro, hr processes for existing employees too exactly so that's been our evolution we we started from the recruitment side of things but as more and more of our customers trusted us they they said why can't you solve some of these other issues which are kind of just continuing from that candidate get, becoming an employee that's absolutely fascinating and so i guess when did you decide to pull the trigger on impress what was there was there a single aha moment or was it just a sort of a a building consensus and a building momentum which meant that you you ended up having to do it yeah there was so i think late 2016 we had been toying with the idea for impress while still running running editorially we we had 3 months of runway left in editorially and we had stopped selling any new projects under under the previous company because we had decided either we're going to look for jobs or we're going to do something big it ended up being the latter when we took the idea to dbs and dbs said we are aligned with your vision here let's work together that was the point we said aha we got our first customer we're going to make this big we're going to try entrepreneurship yet again so the three co-founders decided that we're going to 
close the previous company and start Impress. And was that, if you feel like you didn't have that DBS, if DBS had said no, or would, do, do you think you would have still still gone ahead with it? Or was that really central to, I mean, that's because that's a great first anchor client, right? <laughs> sort of coming in with yeah. a, the contract to DBS. So was that sort of fundamental to you actually doing this? Or, you know, would you have, would you have gone ahead with it anyway? I think DBS was quite fundamental to, to us continuing to do it. In hindsight, I do think that we would have continued to hustle for at least a few more months from that point onwards. We would have probably hustled for another six months or so. And at that point, we did get into an accelerator as well, which funded further hustling for a while. So I think we would have continued for at least half a year to nine months more. And maybe something else would have struck by then. Uh, but it was, I can say it was very, very difficult at that point. So we went from half a million in revenue with, with proper salaries uh, for seven people. And when we started Impress, we were again without salary for at least three months before we saw some cash flow. Okay. Okay. And I guess how how did you how did you keep yourselves upbeat and how did you keep yourselves positive throughout that time? Because obviously, you know, a lot of a lot of new entrepreneurs go through this. It's it can be some pretty dark days. How how did you sort of keep the spirits of everybody up during that time? We looked at the worst case scenario. So as a team, uh, the three co-founders, both of both my other co-founders are PhDs in computer science. So we we kind of find logical thinking the the most useful tool to to think through scenarios. So what we thought is, okay, to do to make Impress successful, these are some of the skills that our company is going to need. We had some other ideas as well. So we were evaluating those against Impress, right? So we looked at what skills we have and what will be required to make each of these ideas successful. Impress came out at the top. That's number one. So that gave us confidence that we actually do have the fundamentals right to make this a success. In terms of, you know, technically trained co-founders and a business co-founder who could actually do enterprise sales. That was, I think, the most important. And then after that, what was important is just making progress, right? So, yes, there were dark days, but every week, as long as we're working hard, either the product is making progress and something cool and aha happens on the product that we can do this. In other weeks there would be an answered email you know in the very early days of of starting a company it's like email getting answered is makes your day so we're going to get to do a demo let's do this so there were these little things happening which overall were increasing in in volume over time so we could see progress so yes there was no money coming to the bank it was objectively very difficult to to live those lives yeah. But progress is what kept us going, honestly, because the worst case scenarios weren't that bad. I mean, if we look at real problems that, that people around the world have, we don't, we don't have, we didn't have any of those problems. We didn't have families to support. We didn't have large fixed costs at that point. So we, we knew we could, we could face the worst if it okay. came to that. So I guess it was a sort of a, a plan for the worst, hope for the best kind of scenario. And in, in that, had you guys sort of outlined key milestones that you needed to make and timelines to hit those key milestones? And then did you did you start the whole journey with, with, a, with a very clear idea of the product you were building? Was it, you know, this is our product, this is the backlog, this is how we're going we're gonna to build it. So I guess sort of from one perspective, were you um, reaching those milestones at, at the right sort of pace? And, and yeah, how was the, the, the product development in those early days? 
Yeah, in the early days, what really helped is number one, uh, getting DBS as a client and agreeing to something and having to deliver something to them. So uh, that became the the first milestone. Okay, DBS has to go live with with certain you know certain instance of impress by this date. That was very powerful for us. And uh, the second most important thing was we we ended up getting the, into this accelerator, which is no longer live, unfortunately. It's called Zero.ai. It used to be called Zero.ai. It got acquired by a Japanese company. So we're now part owned by a couple of Japanese companies. But that gave us, so Tac Low was the person running that accelerator. And that gave us a lot of discipline because uh, we were forced to put timelines and product roadmap for what we're going to build. So I think having been a part of that accelerator, being exposed to other startups who were very who were being run by very capable founders, it gave us the needed discipline to set these milestones. And and yeah, we, we were hitting these milestones both on the product side and the business side. Okay, I have to send out these many uh, lead generation emails, I have to run these many campaigns and track the progress, ask the other founders what they're doing and how they're, uh, how they're doing the, their sales. Same on the product side, ask the other founders what they're doing to test their product, to get feedback. Uh, so that being in that community actually helped a lot. So I like the idea of accelerators. And if you, if you were to pick two or three things that you, you did really well in that early stage, what, what would they be? I would say the best thing we ever did, which was good for our company, at least it's not good for every company. We stuck to our guns when it came to the decision between enterprise businesses, enterprise uh, customers versus uh, small and medium-sized customers, right? So we stuck to doing business with enterprise, even though it was far more painful, there was was a lot more administrative work than product-related work. There was a lot more IT security than functionality. Because ultimately the, the numbers, the money we were talking about, the market we were talking about, it felt far, far more secure and made sense as a business, right? Uh, we could have chosen to build our company for for an exit valuation, right? For, okay, get, get this traction, get these thousand companies on board. It doesn't matter if you make money on, on any of those thousand, but just build for growth. We ended up building our, our company a lot more for real revenues, profit margins, uh, and delivering actual value sustainably to a client uh, rather than for things we think of as vanity metrics. So I think that was very important for us, sticking to enterprise. Fascinating. And I mean, you've built a pretty impressive list of, of, of clients along the way. Uh, you know, I think obviously people like DBS, Singtel, Accenture. And how did you go about new logo acquisition? How did you get into these, these, these businesses? I think uh, one of the things we did very well was using our relationships from Iditory because Iditory was a struggle, right? The previous company, we, uh, there are many fascinating stories there as well, how we got our first customer with, with Iditory and the second and the third, but we had at least 10 relationships and other brewing relationships from Iditory time. And they started converting. So actually DBS and Singtel came pretty much from our ideatory time relationships. Uh, And once you have validation from that kind of companies uh, and they're willing to vouch for you as a person, uh, because at that point we didn't really have a product, 
uh, but they they could vouch for us as as people that helped a lot we ended up growing our relationships with the help of certain advisors and they made so for example one of my, uh, my advisors eric tachibana he um, he's actually a part owner in the company as well he made at least 100 introductions and some of those converted the others led to further introductions so relationships i think and reputation as uh, as a person that is uh, that has been very very important so that what pretty much helped in logos because in enterprise sales and in many other kinds of sales but especially enterprise sales they are first buying the person they're talking to uh, they have to be able to trust and then they're willing to listen what the person has to offer so i focused on getting that credibility with people first and yeah. then they they ended up giving us their logos as well and have have you faced any any challenges with enterprise customers particularly early on being such a new company and i you know obviously lots of these businesses if they're going to sign a big contract with somebody they want to see last three years earnings and, and all of this sort of stuff how how did you get around those concerns we could use our credentials from ideatory so at ideatory again we had worked with swiss banks we'd worked with fortune 500 companies uh, so we could we could use that credibility we were already onboarded onto some of the some of the largest companies procurement lists oh, okay. uh, so we used that to our favor and yeah it was it was very challenging still because as a three man team without any funding to be honest at that point there was no venture funding we had at that point uh, it was just pure being being there making you know making sure they see as you not dying out because uh, these companies are expecting you to die out. You're a startup with with no business today, very small team, no funding. But we just refused to die out, and we were in their faces all the time. And at a certain point, they, they started taking us seriously. At a certain point, some people inside those companies were ready to stand behind us, stand with us, uh, and support us within their companies. They can't. They took a risk on us, but getting them to a point where they could feel comfortable with with taking that risk. I think that's where it's it's just time and it's just being there and not giving up. And I guess sort of from those early days, do you, do you look back at any decisions you made or or any uh, choices you took as a, a a team and and think that was a really bad idea? Why you know why did we do that? Um, and perhaps you know what you may have changed if you could go back and change anything. Yeah, there are there are some some things that we do regret but probably no other way around them we so for example for one of our customers we ended up doing uh, a private cloud deployment and the reason was that our own infrastructure wasn't sophisticated enough because it costs money and we didn't have that money at that point so we ended up deploying on their infrastructure now the deal would not have gone through if we had not done that but as of today i think that's that's one of the things that we struggle the most to maintain because we don't have access to that infrastructure we have to send kind of our software to them and uh, guide them through that deployment on their own servers so that private cloud deployment is something that we regret in some ways but in other ways we know that is one of the reasons one of the biggest reasons we are where we are today and we ended up doing a lot more public cloud deployments pretty much because of that yeah. 
Okay, okay. I guess it's kind of a necessary easeful, and I'm sure you learned a lot along the way there. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess if if you were if you were to give advice, you know what what would be advice you would be giving to people in in early stages of their business? What do you think are the two or three really key important things for them during that during that sort of early stage? Looking back, I think some of the things that we could have done better, and I wish I had known, was number one validation. So empirical validation of whatever you're proposing, your value proposition, even if it takes experimentation, right? You have to validate the, the, your business idea with real customers. So that's number one. Um, and number two would be traction, just focusing on traction. And I think that's what we focus the most on, getting traction. I wish we had focused a lot more on validation as well because validation goes a long way uh, when you're trying to convince people even if you don't have customers then the third one i would say is relationships another thing we did well and we continue to i think relationships of all sorts with customers with the people who are buying from you and with investors and with advisors just keep them posted just you know, develop that relationship of trust through exchanging advice, through exchanging experiences. Uh, I think these three things would be the ones I would want to know as an entrepreneur starting out. And I guess sort of throughout your conversations with with your clients, have you had to say no too much? You know, have, how much have you struck the balance between staying true to the core, the core product line, and the, and, and accommodating requests that they might have had along along the way? We we struggle that with a lot as an as any young company, uh, you you get a lot of it, a uh, lot of ideas, you get a lot of requests uh, at multiple levels, right? So there would be some investors who'd say, why don't you tap into this market? I think this is a very large market and it'll be growing for a while. But I'm sitting there and thinking, yeah, in principle that's a big market, but I know from my experience that market is not ready and that market is not profitable. So that's. That is an example of where I would have to say no to a particular idea. When it comes to customers, we have even actually on both sides, we have tried to straight stay true to our principles. So as co-founders and as early employees, we really put down our values. We have actually a list of company values, right? And we we produce a lot of internal content to say why we do certain things certain way, why we would not do other things. And one of those would be, I, I might be venturing into somewhat controversial you know, area here, but the idea of using people's facial expressions to shortlist them for jobs, I'm very iffy about that idea. I, yeah, and, and as a company, it just does not, it, it does not gel with, with our company values because we have uh, along the way, actually a product, value and the key product value is making hiring fairer yeah and yeah. you can make that decision whether you've made hiring fairer uh, for a candidate or for a company only if you know there is some basis to it there's some scientific basis to the decisions that, that are being made to the insights that are being generated and with with the example i just mentioned we're just not sure that that basis is there anywhere so we have we have stayed true to our opinions as much as possible or rather ag agnostic in uh, in the yeah. commercial sense sometimes I, I mean most of the time you can't stop a customer from doing what they want to do so 
we're we're agnostic we won't offer our opinion we will uh, if asked we will offer our opinion but still let them integrate whatever they want to use with our product but leave the results to kind of Okay, interesting. So yeah, you you yeah. you actually had a, a client asking to to screen candidates on facial facial expressions and <laughs> yeah. Have, we, have we, you seen we, have you seen any research to support that as a as an idea? I think it's a it's a fascinating concept, but yeah, it's a uh, it's very patchy. I would say. I think in certain roles there may be some correlation, especially where you need to build face to face relationships. Sure. Uh, and that's where non-verbal communication becomes very important. So I can see that in some cases it will apply. But yeah. the sad part is that we, I think in recruitment, we apply it to more areas than than we should. We apply yeah. appearance and non-verbal communication in more areas than we should be. So there was one, there was one of these customers where they wanted pictures to be shown in the in the scores that we show on our dashboard. And that's a very common ATS feature that yeah. you can see the pictures of the candidates who are applying even while shortlisting them. But there are more than enough studies to show that causes huge amount of bias. Yeah. So we we ended up saying no to that customer that, sorry, we're not going to show pictures. <laughs> and we're not go- we don't even show names, let alone pictures. Yeah, and I guess that's um, using, a, using a tool like this, I... I, I, I imagine you can you can really take the bias out of those early stages and you can get through the the filtering process you can get the people who are most skilled for the role and then present that as a list so yeah okay and and so how does that list ultimately come through to the client what do they see at the end of the the impress part of the process yeah so as i was mentioning io psychology earlier when we were starting Impress, when we were building out the product, the three of us as co-founders read hundreds of papers combined in IO psychology, in behavioral psychology. Uh, in fact, my co-founder has published papers in uh, in behavioral psychology as well before. So we have some credibility in that area and we are passionate about that area, doing it properly. So the product was built based on principles which reduce bias at every decision-making step. Right. One example of that would be, of course, removing names while you're making a shortlisting decision. Another example would be if you're evaluating an answer from the candidate as a recruiter, you won't see their name even at that point. So you'd see answer after answer from different candidates, but you don't see the answers from the same candidate in one go. Because uh, if you're seeing answers for the same candidate in one go, then you already have some kind of an opinion about the person from the first answer. And you're going to apply it in a biased way to their other answers. So those sort of, I mean, the the product architecture is deeply built to uh, based on these best practices. So that's that I would say has been extremely important for us, right? So how does this show to the candidate? How does it show to the client? Now, a candidate would interact with our platform using a chat-based interface where they're asked questions based on the competencies required for that role. The competencies are explicitly selected by our customers based on whichever role they're hiring for. So for sales, there would be a certain competency, there would be certain knowledge questions, similar for other areas. For example, for management associate program, you'd try to evaluate leadership competencies. And for each of these competencies, there are situational judgment questions or there are other kinds of evaluation methods you can use. Uh, This information is then passed through a rubric that has been set in consultation with the client. So our team helps the client set scoring criteria for these answers. 
some scores are calculated based on rules other scores may be calculated based on machine learning right so the, we can go into detail on that at some other point but all those scores based on the rubric then come together to give a total score uh, which says okay for this role if you require these competencies these are the scores for the candidates based on the match so we we stick to scientific criteria in in these scores as much as uh, you know humanly possible and it's shown on a dashboard to the client in the form of scores and the answers the candidate gave and they also see what the machine rated so that they can make sure that the machine is rating it just like they would and and so from an industry um standard perspective for this type of tool is that is that an approach that's being taken by a lot of businesses because it sounds like a really so obviously heavy approach on the the scientific aspect making sure that everything is done within you know best practice and to to really uh, remove bias from the process is that is that quite standard for tools like this or are you guys sort of leading leading the market in in, in this um, there are some tricky approaches that the market is taking and that comes through when uh, the clients ask us whether we do certain things and one of those tricky approaches is matching candidate resumes to job descriptions right it's something that uh, companies have done for the longest time earlier via ats systems by matching keywords and today there may be machine learning algorithms or nlp algorithms that people are using to to do this match the evidence is again very very difficult but there is a lot of uh, so evidence of accurate matches is is iffy but there is more than enough evidence of that approach developing biases and reducing diversity in some cases a lot depends on how the algorithm is built so that approach unfortunately has been the standard that we've seen in the market however uh, as more and more companies are becoming aware of the bias that can come from AI algorithms, they're investigating how are these scores being calculated. With Impress, they're able to see there's no black box. There's A plus B plus C plus D. You can see it. There's a transparent equation to calculate the final result. So that passes any kind of audit of the techniques uh, very easily. And more and more companies are being pushed to make their to make the evaluation systems whether they are based on machine learning or not more objective more auditable so we are seeing some movement in this direction but i i do feel based on what we've seen in the market that we are somewhat outliers right now but i i think the industry is moving in the right direction and the industry is also moving in this direction i guess sort of moving on you've you've now built the company up to to close to 30 people i believe um yes when you've been looking to bring people into the business, what what are the key attributes you look for people when they're joining when they're joining you? I think the most important, of course, we start with is we break down the role into into competencies. So internally, also we follow the same principles to test our own techniques, right? So each job in the company has actually been defined on an Excel sheet that we maintain in the company, and we are told that the the amount of process we follow internally. Is is not characteristic of most startups, so uh, I don't know how to think about that. But every job in the company is defined on an Excel sheet. What are the roles? And then we try to convert them to the best of our understanding, and with the help of an IO psychologist we have internally into competencies. And then those competencies get broken down into the questions that would be required to assess those or different kinds of exercises. Now, 
yeah, that, that's the, that's the kind of detail we we kind of go into, and then we convert that to uh, an impress chat based structured interview. So everybody who applies to our company, at least until the mid management roles, goes through a chat based interview on impress. Okay. Okay, so it's it's great that you're actually sort of practicing what you preach and you're using your own your own approach to to screen your own people. That's fascinating as well. One of the things I've been speaking to a number of people about recently is how you build that type type of competency based interviewing. And I think we we could probably do a whole other other podcast on that. But I guess for people in startups that are scaling their teams and they're looking to take a more objective approach, is there are there two or three sort of key things they can look at to try and make sure that they are being truly objective? and that they are using sort of best practices on, on trying to get the best people into their organization? Yeah, um, so there, there's, different, there's different levels to which you can do that. I think the, uh, the, the place to start with is, I believe, what we have done. Just break down the job into what functions that person will be doing and figure out what knowledge and skills they need to have to, to do that job. For a salesperson, for example, uh, because that's my area, you would probably need to be able to run prospecting campaigns. You need to be able to know how to do follow-ups. You need to be process-oriented, detail-oriented, because you'll be negotiating contracts in some cases. You need to build presentations where all the numbers are correct because it's a formal proposal. So you can usually, while thinking, this process is called job analysis technically, right? So you break down the job into the activities that are involved. And you're most often, by breaking down, you're able to identify what are the competencies and skills required? Now, uh, then comes the interesting part where you can get a little bit creative. Uh, for each of these competencies, you can either uh, use existing assessments in the market. You can build your own knowledge assessments where you ask specific questions. You can do situational judgment questions as well. But the, I think one of the more important things to do is uh, prioritize what you're going to use as a screening mechanism because you can't make your you know, automated process, you can't make your assessments too long. So prioritize the top three things you need to check uh, before you talk to them. When you do talk to them, have a structured interview process, which basically means you've identified the competencies, you have the questions which you want to ask, and you you are comfortable with techniques to probe, to, to dive deeper into past experiences of the person, which show the competencies you're looking for. So uh, I think these three would be the key things that we have learned in our business as working. Okay, so to, I guess to sum up, you you identify the key parts of the, the role and then you break it down into to skills. You work out a series of questions and use like a behavioral-based or competency-based interviewing approach to then screen specifically for those skills. Exactly, exactly. And one of the things that I haven't mentioned and is important is, of course, company values. It It makes a lot of sense to define that early on in writing and have an approach to evaluating those. For us, those we have eight core values which we test people for. And it's interesting, it sounds like going back to when you first decided to, to launch Impress out of the, the plethora of other ideas, it sounds like you did this approach on yourselves at the very start to work out which 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 had the best of uh, you know the best chance of success based on your skill sets. I, I think that's one thing that many startups really don't don't engage in that type of activity early on. But it's fascinating that it's that's where you started. That's what you do, and that's how you continue to grow. Yeah, yeah not not really sure whether we we've been spending time on the best things, right? But that's <laughs> been our approach uh, as three co-founders. I mean, we 
we at least agree on the approach to do things most of the time and we challenge ourselves and end up yeah getting to the most logical approaches that that we can think of we did this exercise of reflection self reflection as a company just when we had passed i think six people six or seven people when we started going beyond that number in terms of hiring we thought let's quickly take a look at what has been working for us as a company what are the comp- what are the values that we are actually practicing and maybe some that we would like to practice so that process of self discovery we kind of did it with some organizations yeah so are there are there any specific business leaders that inspire you yeah there's this there's this japanese founder that i met a couple of years ago he's the founder of this company called bizreach and his name is soichiro minami he calls himself swimmy so he's he's someone who really inspired me i've met him a couple of times every time i visit japan i i try to say hi to him and just get his advice yeah really like That's him nice. uh, what 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 about what about him what about him inspires you whenever i met him i felt he was true to the principles there's no i don't know what the right word is but uh he's just true to the basic principles of building a company or building it uh, for it to generate cash to generate uh revenue and profit and there's there's no vanity metrics with him there's no you know thinking about what looks good to an investor potentially or for valuation it's really about the basics he's he likes to say that he doesn't want to reinvent the wheel he doesn't he doesn't think he's a smart person he so for things where he doesn't need to invent new things he just uses what is established in the market and i think one of the one of the key things for me there is enterprise sales right or b2b sales in general with that he said look i just follow the the salesforce you know salesforce founder wrote a book and i just follow that i don't want to be reinventing how that is done uh, because it works so some of these things right don't overcomplicate it use what works focus on the big market not not for vanity metrics but you know what your customers need as long as you stick to those given enough time you would be uh, your company would be successful and today his company has crossed a billion dollars in valuation uh, i think he started close to a decade ago but yeah he's been a very successful company hasn't diluted Uh, a lot and continues to generate amazing returns for his investors he's actually turned his company into a conglomerate now so he's gotten into other business lines other products uh, other industries outside of hr so it's been just fantastic to see him build a business empire starting from just an hr software company so he he basically is a, i guess a business principles purist it's like the the whole point of the business is to to run a, a tight ship to to make money it's not about making him look good it's not about sort of you know having the coolest sexiest thing it's about basically just getting those those core principles right sort of almost exactly and yeah, i guess and and so for the, the key you know what do you see as really the, uh, as including this what do you see as the key aspects for a leader to be successful I think one of the most important things other than uh, you know the sticking to the basic principles I do believe that you have to be committed you have to be truly committed to making your own people successful your team right when we're talking about leadership in the context of my own uh, my own team every single person in my company I want them to be successful whether in the company or beyond I would like our company to produce leaders many leaders in the industry rather than you know being the face of it for forever 
So I want to produce many people who are good enough to be faces of our company. But but yeah, at the core, I want them to be successful just as much as I would want our customers to be successful. So, you know, following the values or really living the values that you want your people to follow, uh, I think that's the that's the second most important aspects of being a good leader. Okay, at so least I aspire in, to these, yeah. Yeah, so embodying your values and then allowing allowing for success amongst the team. I think that's the sign of a of a of a good manager is somebody who steps aside and the business keeps running um, exactly yeah. as it should. So, great. And yeah, so what does the future hold for Impress? Where do you see the company going across the next the next couple of years? Next couple of years are super exciting because in Singapore, we've seen amazing confidence from, from large enterprises, from governments, educational institutions. We've entered some very interesting industries over the past couple of months. We've just entered the healthcare industry. So we're, we're selling into healthcare and especially given this time, it's, it's very important. We've entered much more deeply into the HR software industry rather than just recruitment now we're building tools across the hr value chain as i described to you now what that means for the company is two things one we're going to have a more regional footprint within this year two we're going to be able to deliver far more value to our existing customers so for me that means that the company should probably be at least 5x in size in the next two years and that's what that's what we're targeting for. And then, yeah, we do have five-year plans and ten-year uh, visions as well. <laughs> okay, wonderful. So, and uh, just to finish up now, we're on to the quick-fire questions. Obviously, every good podcast needs to finish with a with a set of quick-fire questions. So, are are you ready for are you ready for these? Yep, I'm ready. Okay. So, question one: What was the best advice you were given as a startup CEO? Not relevant for everyone, but becoming a permanent resident. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, question two, what was the worst? I'll sell for you in return for 20% of your company. <laughs> okay, excellent. Tell me something that is true that almost nobody agrees with you on. It is possible to build a global enterprise software company from Singapore. <laughs> excellent favorite restaurant in singapore it's a tie between hans and gluk and nom vinam both of them have vegan options okay i <laughs> see that's that's a, a key point in your selection criteria and what is your most obscure hobby probably rollerblading Oh, excellent. And that brings us to the, the end of the podcast. Sud, it's been an absolute pleasure. I feel like we've got ideas for, for two or three other podcasts coming out of this. And, and I could go on talking for, for, for a couple of hours more, but I, I, we all have uh, homes to go to. Um, we're already in our homes. Um, so, yeah, I guess thank you very much and great stuff. And we'll catch you on the, on the next one. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And thanks for such wonderful questions. I hope <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll meet soon. Yeah. Thanks again for listening to Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders with me, Sam Randall. On the next episode, we are super excited to welcome Michele Ferrario, the CEO and co-founder of StashAway. Michele is responsible for the launch and growth of such businesses as Rocket Internet in Italy, Pakistani commerce giant Daraz, Southeast Asia online fashion site Zalora, and his most recent venture, Singapore-based wealth management robo-advisory StashAway. 
He joins me on the podcast to talk about his experiences in scaling some of the most well-known brands in Southeast Asia, the importance of people setting the right culture early on, and the stresses of fundraising. Here's a little excerpt from that conversation. But then we tried to raise a three million Singapore dollars round uh, in a kind of a early 2017, and that was pre-revenue because yeah. we needed the money for the license, and without yeah. the license, we couldn't launch. Yeah. And that was incredibly difficult. I actually spoke to 125 investors uh, and got 124 no. I look forward to seeing you next time. Goodbye for now and stay safe. <laughs>